This is the Ritz and Cures podcast. This is Ritz and Cures, Bill and Steve's radio adventure. May I introduce you to your hosts, Bill O'Shea, Melbourne lawyer. Good evening to you, sir. Hi, Libby. And Associate Professor Steve Ellen, who's a psychiatrist, director of the Psychosocial Oncology Program at the Peter McCallum Centre in Melbourne and owner of the longest introduction in the world. Morning, evening to you. G'day. <laughs> After all that, I'll go for a brief hello then. What do you reckon, Bill? Well... What's on your mind? Libby, uh, two things. First of all, I didn't think I'd ever say this, but I want to congratulate Robert Doyle for dropping the homeless clearance policy that's been announced tonight. We've dealt with it on this program, and he I think he felt it was going to be subject to a legal challenge, and he didn't want the protracted problems of a legal challenge, which in the end nobody wins from. So they've announced tonight that they're going to work with police and provide a much more constructive so- a solution to homeless people living in the CBD, which is great news mm. and um, great for, for everybody, really, with the idea of finding uh, homes for people who are homeless, f- finding accommodation for them, which is a really good outcome. And we I have... think the gist of what I read was that homeless people, um, they won't be asked to move on if they're sleeping in the streets. If they leave stuff behind during the yeah. day and go elsewhere, it will be removed. Yeah. But there will be um, more alternatives than just yeah. uh, so that's great. police options. And the other thing is I went to, I shouldn't big note myself, but I went to the farewell for the Chief Justice on Saturday night. Chief Justice Marilyn Warren, as I kept calling her, Earl Warren all night, you know, in a sort of joke. All those lawyers and their jokes. Earl Warren, of course, was the US, uh, who's long dead, US uh, Supreme Court Justice. In fact, did the report on the Kennedy assassination. Anyway, Marilyn Warren, our Chief Justice, uh, is retiring. Um, Well, uh, before her time, really. Um, She's very fit and agile and... And I'm Useful. sure she'll be doing other things. Yeah. Anyway, it was a great event. And um, uh, I didn't notice you there, Steve. There were a few doctors there. Really? Uh, I couldn't believe why the doctors would be there. But No, was... I, was, I was there. I was the guy serving wine. Uh, yeah. That's or right. champagne in your Anyway, uh, and Anne Ferguson is the new Chief Justice. First of all, another woman, but the first ever solicitor to be appointed as the Chief Justice. She was one of the first, second solicitors appointed, I think, as a, or no, a woman solicitor appointed as a Supreme Court judge. Uh, um, but the fact that she's now Chief Justice is the first woman solicitor ever to be the Chief Justice of Victoria. Isn't she the first solicitor to be Chief Justice of Victoria? Yeah, and the first solicitor as well. So mm. it's a great achievement for her. So they're normally barristers, is that the point? Normally barristers, Bernie yeah, Teague and was appointed was the first yeah. solicitor to be the first justice. Yeah, he's killed them, of course. He's so good, Bernie Teague. I mean, if ever there was a way to dispel a myth about solicitors not making good judges, Bernie's it. And I think he's just left everybody gobsmacked at his with the way he's performed, and but, he's still performing. Though killed them possibly isn't the best. No, <laughs> but I mean, he took on literally. Speaking of killing, he took on the criminal list, and he was a defamation lawyer. I mean, he acted for the Herald Sun for years in his private practice, and they said, "Well, you've got crime," so he had to basically learn it all from the ground up. And, of course, he ended up running the criminal list in the Supreme Court, apart from doing, you know, as we know, the Bushfire Royal Commission afterwards. Um, you know, five o'clock at the office, caught burglars in the Supreme Court building one morning, arriving at work at 5am, found the place being burgled. Uh, so he also took on the role of the police as well. <laughs> He's amazing, man. That's but illegal. He was our first solicitor, uh, Supreme Court judge, as Libby says, but it's been all good since. Can you tell us about Anne? What's her Anne was a partner thing? at Allen's. Uh, one of the biggest firms in Australia, and uh, is already a Supreme Court judge. She was appointed to the Supreme Court some time ago. I think maybe, maybe two or three years ago. I'm not sure on that point. But uh, 
extremely highly regarded and um, we the universally acclaimed by the bar and by the legal profession, the solicitors branch. Whereas in the past, when solicitors have been appointed, the bar hasn't been quite as enthusiastic as it could have been. As I say, the experience of people like Emilius Kairu and Bernie Teague uh, and um, and uh, who's, I'm trying to think of the other person, Marcia Neve, people like that have been such stars in the role that the myth has now been more well and truly dispelled. So it was good. It was a good event. And, and so one quick question for the non-lawyers in the room. That's me, I think. Um, what does the Chief Justice do? Well, Chief Justice runs the court, as, apart from sitting on the sitting in the practice court and doing a day-to-day stuff, which is where you go in and try and get an injunction, you know, that's urgent, yeah. um, and sits on cases, sits so the on appeals, CEO sits the on the Court of Appeal, system. but also is the CEO, well, she has a CEO, All right. but ultimately she's responsible for the government for the running of the court. So but she'll expect her CEO to keep her informed, but in terms of resources, how you spend them, what you do with the building. I mean, when she took over that building, you all know the sandstone pile, mm. Uh, on the corner of William and uh, Lonsdale, it's uh, it was falling to pieces, and you know it was uh, just awful, really, in terms of facilities. So she's done a lot. Um, the one thing that's held her back is the telephone exchange in Little Burke Street, because um, you can't do a major revamp of the court unless you get hold of the Telstra or the te- the telecom. A telephone exchange, which is at the back of the court, and that's owned by the Commonwealth, and the Commonwealth refused to give it up. So they could never do a proper redevelopment of the Supreme Court, even though uh, the Chief Justice wanted to do that. The connection between the telephone system and the redevelopment of the court? Yeah, they said, that, well, te- uh, Commonwealth said we're not moving I think, I think Bill's we're going into privatisation, which is his actual topic tonight, <laughs> if he ever gets around to it. So we do want to talk about, uh, the, yeah, the privatisation issue. So soapbox now. I'll talk about soapbox, if you don't mind, Libby. Uh, the, Proceed. The, the, the state government's proposing to sell off the land titles office. Now, um, I understand you've got to pay for the railway crossings and someone's got to pay. I know the Port of Melbourne sale has funded a lot of the railway crossing removals, our level crossing removals. But to sell the... Um, what it means is you're selling a government monopoly to a private provider. Now, if, you, if someone acquires a monopoly, they don't have much incentive to perform well because they're in a monopoly. No one else runs your title system but the person running the land titles office. So your obligation, if you own it, is to make a profit for your shareholders. So what will you do if you're a private provider? You'll cut the staff, you'll give less effective service, you'll up the fees, and you'll make sure, just like the Commonwealth Bank did when it was privatised, that the shareholders come out winners and the customers come out losers. And that's what we're seeing with the Commonwealth Bank. And we've seen it with electricity privatisation. Uh, thank you, Jeff Kennett. I mean, electricity prices, you know, would they be the same if they weren't privatised? Well, you'd have to say, as soon as you introduce profit, uh, uh, private health insurance, you know, the real winners there are the shareholders, not the poor old people who are insured. But this is worse because it's a monopoly. And the view of the Law Institute and others is that it would be completely wrong to privatise um, uh, this monopoly organisation that controls the, 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 your land and, you know, the register that, where you can search and all the rest of it for your land, apart from having all your private information. You know, this came across my my desk about an hour or so ago or two, and I looked and I thought, oh, no, privatisation, I've seen so many arguments for or against, and let's face it, I'm a doctor, I know nothing about this whole topic. But I at least tried to have a decent look at it from the standpoint of the man on the street, or person on the street, I should say. Or as um, we would say... 
your average man or woman on the Clapham omnibus. Yeah. Yes, that was me. So I had a bit of a so you know it's a, it's quite so first up you know I could see when I googled it I could see yeah the Law Institute was against it, bills against it, um, and real estate institutes are against it. Various people are against it, and the key arguments are the ones you put up that um, that one that uh, um, it's a monopoly and the privatisation will not be good for customers, and two that it's putting a whole lot of private data, all of our titles and in, private information into hmm. the hands of a private company. What does that mean? But then when I looked further, of course, um, other places in Australia have already done it. So New South Wales did it earlier this year for the same reason, largely to fund infrastructure. Theirs was to fund upgrades of their three sports stadiums and a whole lot of roads. And they raised $2.6 billion, um, for the sale for a 35-year lease that they gave theirs. And interestingly, they sold it 80% to Australian what were mostly superannuation companies. And I note my superannuation company was one of them. So I'm actually a conflict of interest. I'm mm. now part owner mm. of the lands registry system in uh, mm. New South Wales, along mm. with thousands of others. Um, and, and they copped a lot of criticism, of course, for the same reasons and from the same groups. But then there was also a lot of pros and cons arguments looking at the excuse me, the history of privatisation and which ones have and haven't gone well. And, and it really, I've got to say, looking at all the arguments, you know, there were all the sort of, uh, what would you call them, the right-wing think tanks that were heavily in support of it, and then there were all the left-wing think tanks that said, look, it's bad in the long run. And some of the arguments, I tried to look up the electricity argument, for example, and clearly since our electricity was privatised, our electricity prices have gone up at um, three times CPI over that time. However, it appeared to me from some of the articles I read that so had the non-privatised companies at electricity prices. So I must admit, it, look, as you know, I think you have to be an economics professor to understand the pros and cons of privatisation. If if the land titles office stuffs up, who gets the bullet? The minister, right? The minister. The minister will be asked in parliament how come the land titles office is working so badly. If it's owned by your superannuation fund, who's accountable? No one in Parliament's going to have a go at your superannuation fund for the way it's running the land titles office. But if it doesn't make a profit, if it's not... They'll make sure it makes a profit. I'm actually arguing the wrong side here. Is making a profit the purpose for the land titles office? No, I wasn't meaning to argue that at all. This is uh, ABC Radio Melbourne, ABC Radio Victoria... You're listening to Ritz and Cures, Bill O'Shea, Melbourne lawyer and Associate Professor Steve Ellen, who's a psychiatrist. We're talking about the health benefits to society of privatising the land titles office. Is there a difference between leasing it and selling it? Well, you're giving away control. So you're giving away control to someone who's who's got it for this, whose primary objective in having it is to make a profit. That's why a private company, no private company is going to take it on and make a loss. They want to make a profit. Well, out we're of it. already making a profit. So they'll probably ban cardigans on the first day. No, we already right. make a big profit. So we make about a hundred. I think it's between one hundred and one hundred and fifty million a year currently from the land titles office. So they already make a big profit. And the New South Wales government, of course, argued that in, that they believed their private. You know, you're going to slap me across the face for this one. Um, but mind you, it's your fault for forcing me onto this side of the argument. But the New South Wales government argued that they got better regulation of land titles because through the process of sales, the rules that they put around yeah. it um, were so strong that they were far stronger than the previous rules. And also they argue that they've got a very clear deal that the in, any price increases associated with use of the land titles um, department have been capped at CPI. So it can't go up at three times CPI like electricity has. Yeah. Of course, others argue that They'll put in so many hidden and confusing fees, yep. which we've seen with roads. Like, well, have I you charge ever, you to get in? Well, have you ever tried? This is I did. I, I, you know, when I got reading about this 
just before, I thought to myself, let me try and figure out how much I pay for CityLink, for example, because that's another case that often is brought up where people argue that CityLink have so many confusing and hard-to-find fees that it's so it's not transparent, and that's one of the problems with privatisation, a lack of transparency, hidden fees, classic argument against electricity companies too. So I went. it took me around about 10 minutes of searching everywhere on the CityLink site to find out how much it actually cost. My, you know, my fees. And really, they're a monopoly too. That's another yeah. monopoly. I mean, there's, you know, it's the same principle really. Is there anything to be gained by regulating who can actually lease it or buy it? Like if, can you actually regulate you who gets to make the profit and therefore where the profits go? Because if the profits go back to poor, humble Steve, the doctor, who's merely struggling to make ends meet with his superannuation. Is that so bad? Well, your superannuation fund is only in it, so it can make profits for your fund. It wouldn't be in it otherwise. But it supports him at the other end of... It's supporting impoverished doctors in their retirement. Impoverished doctors who don't have to then lean on the social system. I think that's changed my entire view about this whole problem. (laughs) (laughs) If you you regulate who can actually Mm. buy into it, could it not have social benefits that that are... actually more far-reaching than just leaving it there as the land titles office? It could. You could uh, argue that. But part of the problem is a lot of the sale goes to... Now I'm jumping sides. A lot of the sale (laughs) goes to overseas companies. So in New South Wales, 20% went to, I think it was a UK company. And just to give you some examples, in Victoria, one-third of our current debt is accounted for by these basically private uh, private deals that uh, the government's got. And as Bill mentioned, we've already sold the Port of Melbourne. Um, all, many of our roads are now sold, the obviously, electricity. Court. The county court. Trains are run out of Hong Kong. The desalination plants run from France. 40% of our prisons are run from by a US company. 20% of our metropolitan um, buses are run from France. Yeah. So, you know, it, re- it, it is just, it is, we, we've been selling off the silver, the, you know, the um, family silver for about two decades now. Um, well, There's can not I a say lot left the, to sell, which is why they're obviously turning to the land's title. The UK obviously. tried to do this, and um, a similar proposal there was abandoned because it attracted such criticism from all sorts of groups, um, lawyers, media, firms, and, should I say, the UK's competition watchdog got on, into the act, and uh, they've said, the, the um, Competition and Markets Authority in the UK, so that selling the land registry would provide the new owner with a monopoly on commercially valuable data with no incentive to approve to improve access to it. So, so it was your, knocked out. So, so the UK was knocked out. So is your gripe privatisation or is your gripe that this is a bad <clears throat> um, thing to sell because of the monopoly and the, monopoly, the fact that it's private data? The fact data. it's got your private data to give it to one provider with, as, well, as Libby said, if you can put controls around it. But have we got controls around the private health funds? I don't think so. Every time they want a price increase, they get it. How can you just sell off a government department like that? You like, corporatise it. How can... Corporatise it, set up as a company. They've already got um, land. You mean how as in morally, don't you? Not as in... Or do you mean how logistically? I mean both. I mean, obviously, mm. this is an arm of infrastructure within the government. So what is the decision-making process whereby something that is gen... I mean, in a euphemistic way that we own can be carved off mm. and sold to Mr. Well, or that, Mrs. X. They have a company called Land Use Victoria and it, all its shares would be owned by the Victorian government. So all it does is sell those shares to the new provider or 51% of them or whatever the percentage is. Don't they have to send out a postal vote or something to get our permission? No. Also, yeah, they, yeah, <laughs> no. they should, shouldn't they? Because, I mean, that basic principle that you've come into government 
and you want to impress the voters by having a big spend on infrastructure or whatever else in New South Wales doing up the football stadiums, and you're going to do it by selling future profits for our community. Because these organisations, land tax, you know, it's making 100 to 150 million a year it for goes Victoria. back into and, the, our coffers. Yeah, and clearly yeah. the private companies wouldn't be buying it if they didn't mm. think it was a fantastic deal. Especially mm. $2.6 they think it's a really fantastic deal. And, and um, to be fair with CityLink, because I was involved illegally in a lot of CityLink, and the issue there was the cost of building it. And yes. the government didn't want to go into debt. To build CityLink, yeah, um, and it was a massive piece of infrastructure. Now, the reality is, as Kenneth Davidson will tell you, no, and as Utopia will tell you from about three episodes ago, no one can borrow cheaper than the government. So that's the cheapest um, has access to the cheapest money in the world. So the best borrower for infrastructure are governments not the private sector. So immediately you give it to the private sector, you're going to pay more for the asset because they want a rate of return. So with CityLink, it's N years. Now it's N plus 20 because they're going to do a widening. On and on it goes, and you never really get ownership. See, I would argue if you're going to privatise anything, it's got to be competitive industries, certainly not the monopolies. I mean, it's, it's just a no-brainer that the monopolies aren't going to work. Yeah. Is everyone all right? What did we, we take decide? Take a deep breath. Well... Uh, let's just hope the uh, the government rethinks the sale of the land titles office as they did in the UK. That's all I can say. And what causes the, profession the government agrees. to rethink pressure conversation? Yeah, pressure, the privacy issues, all the issues I've raised tonight. Um, you know, pressure. Yeah, pressure from those organisations. I think you're on a hiding to nothing. I think they'll sell it. <laughs> Surely they need the money. Well, yeah, but you know, you've got to live within your means. Bill and Steve's radio adventure continues. Bill O'Shea, Melbourne lawyer, present. I am present, Your Honour. Associate Professor Steve Ellen, psychiatrist and director of the Psychosocial Oncology Program at Peter McCallum. Guilty, sir? I'm here. I'm no, here. No, you meant to say guilty. No, I'm, I'm going to school. I'm going to school approach. Here. I'm here. I've got well, my during, lunch. During the break, he swiped my Medicare card. What was that all about? <laughs> got to get paid for coming in somehow. Look at this. This is very interesting. Professor Jane Gunn, thank you very much for joining us with these two rat bags. Thank you, Libby. Great to be here. Of course, it's Steve's idea. <laughs> Isn't it? It is. Yeah. Do you want me to give an intro? Yeah. Jane, okay, let me tell you. I've already mentioned that Jane is Professor of Primary Care Research at the Uni of Melbourne, where she's also Head of the Department of General Practice and Deputy Head of the Melbourne Medical School. Pretty impressive already, but there's more. Jane is one of Australia's leading researchers in managing mental health problems in general practice settings. She's also past president for the Australasian Association for the Academy of Primary Care and sits on so many committees and advisory committees that really, if I listed them all, we'd take up the whole half hour just doing that alone. And we'd be really intimidated, quite frankly, because (laughs) it's as long as this. Yeah, we always have overachievers on these programs (sighs) as guests. Yeah, feeling a little bit low. Yeah, we always feel terrible afterwards. Just as well. We've got someone here who can deal with our low self-esteem and mental health. We can. Well, thank you. It's great to be here with you all tonight. You know, we want, to, we want to talk to you about mental health, but before we get into it, I just wanted to, we wanted to start off by touching on this whole issue of in the old days, people thought you either became a specialist like a cardiologist or a dermatologist or a radiologist, or you were a GP. Whereas ever since, really, it's probably 20 or 30 years now, GP is a specialty itself. Can you explain what's meant by that? Yes, look, um, GPs actually have to do special training to be a GP nowadays, and we call it specialist training in general practice. It's been running, as you say, Steve, for a 
decades now. Um, and once we go through medical school and decide that we want to be GPs, then we have to enter into a, a specialist training program. And that's quite competitive to get a, a place in that. Um, and that goes for around three years of specialist training in the community. After that, you sit exams and then you're a GP. So, so does that mean most current GPs will have done this training if it's been around for decades? Look, um, I'm not sure if I could say most, but anybody with an FRA CGP after their name, a fellowship of the Royal Australian College of GPs or a fellowship of the Australian College of Rural and Remote Medicine, they are qualified GPs. Just putting that in an arts degree term, is that like you can do your arts degree and then you can either do your honours or your master's? Like you can do your Masters of Arts? Um, is that, because not everybody has to do this specialist GP training. To you be do a G- now to be a do. GP, yes. Everybody so now has, has, to, to has to do a specialist qualification so to be a GP. In the old days, you could have said, well, I didn't get into cardiac and I didn't get into orthopaedics, so I'll, I'll just, just be a GP. hang my shingle out and be a GP. Yeah, that old thing, just a GP. Yeah, that's but you're no the longer most, the case. you're the gatekeeper. Not quite the gatekeeper. Many have gone before, um, but we're the gatekeeper for the healthcare system. That's so. What happens then true. if it's competitive to get in? What happens to the people who don't get into one of the training programs, oh, either yes. general practice, psychiatry, surgery, whatever? What happens to them these days, or do, does everyone get something in the long run? Look, at the moment, not everybody does get a position in their choice of um, specialty, and they'll have to go and work in other sort of settings. They'll work in hospitals. They'll work in supervised placements until they can get a training. Program as what? As their what they choose to do. Medical I mean, I administration. Think... They could do medical well, administration. No, they, a lot of them are hospital well, medical officers. <laughs> no, a lot, a lot of genuinely hospital medical officers. So all the junior doctors in the hospital are either are waiting to get into a training program, and then the sort of the more senior ones are tra- they're in specialty training programs. So the junior ones are called resident M- uh, medical officers. Then the trainees are called registrars, and then once you've qualified, you're called a consultant. So there are a lot of the, a lot of people There's just a lot working, of those. especially in the country. They're working as career medical officers. That's right. And look, I'm not sure of the numbers that are missing out. I'm not the one to ask, but there is that's a growing concern for our trainees, um, you know, for the medical students that they might miss out on their profession of choice. So it is a concern. So does that mean getting back to the mental health area? Um, I had no idea until tonight, really, that um, mental health was mostly treated by GPs. I assumed that if you were Feeling unwell and you had a mental health issue, you'd go to a, an emergency department, Alfred Psychiatry, you know, Melbourne Health Psychiatry, and see whoever's on duty. But you're, what you're telling us, and Steve's telling us, is that mental health, uh, the front line for mental health is the GP. That's right. Yes, the GP is the first port of call for most Australians that have a problem with their mental health. And the ongoing care as well. And the ongoing care. I, uh, people find it surprising, but uh, that's the reality. I find and it's it been worrying. that way for a long time. I find it worrying. Worrying? Yeah. Why worrying, Libby? I find it worrying because I have known of instances whereby girlfriends who have, say, been suffering from severe uh, PMT, say, have gone to see the GP in a state and been prescribed Prozac by the GP. And yet it would seem that, to be prescribed anti uh, to, to be described antidepressant medication, there should be some sort of more uh, thorough or um, more cogent an- analysis of what the problem was before one resorts to medication for these sorts of things. Or is this just me? And this I'm is just, a ten minute consultation. Yeah, ten or fifteen oh, look, minutes because no. that's what goes with your rebate, right? I mean, I don't know. I'm just asking. I completely question. agree. I would agree that that's not ideal. The 
the scenario that you paint with your your friend. Um, I think that hopefully that's not uh, the Common. norm, but and I don't I don't think it is. I mean, GPs are, are really well trained to assess people both their mental and physical health, and they should be doing a, a thorough assessment before they prescribe any medication. Of course, we'll always come up with stories where it's not quite right, and and that will be the case not only in general practice but across all of the, the specialty settings. Um, but I think we're pretty fortunate in Australia. We've got a, a very a very good um, general practice um, network throughout the country. And part of the problem is you don't hear about the silent majority. So there's, you know, obviously thousands and thousands who go to their GPs with anxiety and depression and general coping problems and stress related to their relationships or their work or whatever. And it's the ones that go wrong where, where you know, people aren't happy with the outcome where they talk. And, and I hear the same story you just told from psychiatry settings and I hear the same story from psychology settings. Um, but the vast majority, you know, hopefully, hopefully, touch wood, you know, they don't go anything like that. But, the, you know, it's the ones where things go wrong where you always hear about. Well, the the other thing about the GP, of course, is it's a point of contact that's regular. Whereas if, for example, they were, they were part-time going to a community health clinic, I'm thinking of places like Wayora, where they would see patients with mental illness from time to time, those sort of community mm. clinics. But if they're also going to the GP in between times, you've got a second set of eyes really on the patient in between times and checking yeah, that's if they're right. on their medication and so on. Yeah, I think, look, you know, more than 80% of Australians, about 85% go to the GP every year. So the GP's used a lot by, by everyone. For those people with um, severe mental illness, they also do visit the GP. Um, but I do think that that group is one that really does need extra special care because in particular, their physical health is very poor. Um, and some people find that really shocking to know that people with severe mental illness are actually at risk of, of early death 15 to 20 years earlier than their counterparts that don't have a severe mental illness. But not from the mental illness. Not from the mental illness, from physical health problems. So that's really important that they actually have really good general practice care. So, I mean, that is the, you know, the... the Tip of the iceberg. Yep. The bigger problem is obviously depression. Mm -hmm. So, you know, certainly 10, 20 years ago, this, you know, if you gave Australia a scorecard on managing depression, it was terrible. About half the most people who were depressed didn't go and see a healthcare professional, especially prior to Beyond Blue. And those who did, about 50% of the time, it wasn't recognised by the healthcare professional. And, uh, and pretty much the only treatment was medication. So we didn't have Medicare for psychologists back then, which we have now. Mm. Do we have any evidence that our what's the evidence that our score that our report cards improved? Look, Steve, I don't know that we can give you evidence that the uh, the scorecard for mental health has has improved per se, because one of the things that we know there's a huge burden of of mental health problems in the community. But you're right in that Australia has um, excellent access to psychological services, so we're a, one of the um, leading countries in the world that has opened up access to non-pharmacological, so non-medicine, so people can get psychological help, they can get um, medication help, and, and that's easily accessible through the GP. In fact, it's a very, very popular form of care and one that's used by millions of Australians. That's what I was wondering, whether or not the GP's assessment abilities are, are used best to, uh, up, not sort of sideways refer, I guess, towards the psychologist or to the psychiatrist or is there time in the Medi Medicare rebatable 
session for the GP to listen long enough to be able to unravel whatever could be possibly causing this distress? Yeah, look, most GPs, um, they'll book appointments for 10 or 15 minutes as their regular appointment times. But for people with mental health problems, um, it's very, very common that they get longer than that. Um, There's also special item numbers that GPs can charge so that they can do proper mental health assessments. um, And these are done before they refer on. So um, the idea that the GP is sort of seeing everyone in five to ten minutes in Australia is actually not correct. In fact, our average length of consultation taken is, is longer than that. So I think GPs here are, are really um, are giving people a very valuable service. And I like to think, but I might be biased, that they're listening pretty hard to all their patients. Jane, <clears throat> do you think that um, an electronic health record would make a difference for mental health patients going to GPs? I mean, that's for example, they might also be going to see the pharmacist. They would be mm. perhaps attending an outpatient's clinic. Um, mm. There could be a different GP on one week to the next if it's a large practice. might just be the GPs away. Uh, you know, not having a health record for these patients is a big disadvantage. It's, you know, an electronic health record. Yeah, look, most GPs have their own electronic health record so that they use that just in their own practice, but it's not linked up to um, anything uh, else in the healthcare system. So that's one of the big challenges. I mean, there is the uh, initiative called My Health Record. So that's where every Australian's going to get an electronic, mm. a shared health record um, that's going to be Op, you know that they're going to have. Um, obviously, it's going to have to be kept up to date. It won't be automatically populated immediately, um, but that I think offers a really great chance to look after people that see various doctors. This is a very interesting session. Your guest here with Bill and Steve's excellent radio adventure is Professor Jane Gunn. She's the primary care research person at the University of Melbourne, where she is head of the Department of General Practice and deputy head of the Melbourne Medical School. Your hosts, Bill O'Shea, Melbourne lawyer, and Associate Professor Steve Ellen, psychiatrist and all-star. If you're listening to this conversation about um, mental health and it's distressing you in some way, I'll just... I might be overreacting, but I'll give you the number for Lifeline. It's 13114. If you are in distress or you feel like you do need to speak with someone tonight and our conversation has triggered you, please feel free to ring that number. We're talking tonight about the GP and about the GP's uh, ability and, and training, really, to be able to diagnose and manage mental health issues. I guess my question, just to kick off our next bit, is something that you started, Bill, which is the connection between the constituent and the GP now and whether or not with the changed work conditions, such a one-on-one relationship whereby you can keep an eye and take a personal interest in the patient from visit to visit actually is a practical manifestation of what life is now. You know, like can you actually rely on a personal relationship between me and my GP to have that insight because many people don't see the same GP each time they go. Uh, Most people actually uh, tend to have a practice that they go to regularly that they'll call their regular practice. But you're right, people do go and we've got a lot of choice. They go to various providers throughout the system. Um, Is it I think that the new technologies actually offer the opportunity to really bring back that personal touch. I mean, 
as long as we can uh, introduce some security around messaging and, and things like that, but email and, and texting are things that are starting to enter into the way that um, GPs are doing work. There is the issue that you need a, a secure messaging service to do that, but I think, you know, why can't you be in contact with the GP um, even if they're not in the clinic? Because <clears throat> they've got a life. They've and got they're... a life. And no, do they? Oh. Well, you know, like people actually put up boundaries between home life and work life now. But it's so hard, isn't it? If you're in a GP clinic and and a Dr X's patient comes and you're Dr Y and the patient's seen Dr X every every month for six months and now he's on leave and Dr Y is seeing... And Dr Y has to read Dr X's file yeah. before the patient walks in. Now, you've got the usual... I know I keep harping about 10-minute consultations, but that's a very big ask mm. unless you can bring it up on a screen and see it up there in front of you. So that's what we do now as GPs. I, I was in my, a clinic that I work in this morning and that's exactly what I did. I saw someone that I'd never seen before, um, but they'd been a very regular patient at our, our clinic for many, many years. Um, look, that's what we're expert at, doctors. We've really, I mean, you know, don't like to uh, blow our own trumpet, but we're pretty good at reading um, very quickly through medical notes. Uh, we're good at, you know, communicating with each other mm. in, in shorthand through those medical notes to get a good sense of the person. As long as we look through um, and people keep good records, then the, you know, you can Pick up where your colleague took off. Mm. And, you know, it's, it is virtually given because the point you were making, Libby, about it's hard to have a relationship with one doctor anymore is a complete reality because the whole process of specialisation means that different people are good at different things. So, like, one of my mates who's a GP, he's currently, for example, studying cognitive behaviour therapy, one of the most common psychological therapies, and he's studying Cantonese because he lives in a big, sorry, Cambodian. He lives in this big Cambodian population and a lot of them have trauma-related issues from, you know, having their past mm. and wars and whatnot. So, you know, you're going to have to see him if you want that, whereas he mightn't be a regular GP. And it's the same in hospitals. You know, where I work in cancer now, you know, the average patient has about four or five doctors. Mm. They're medical oncologists, they're radiotherapists, they're surgeon. So we're... Com and, and the key is the technologies. Mm. We have mm. those online technologies. So I can bring up a record now within about 20 seconds, and I can see summaries of everything that's going on. And within about four or five minutes, if it's complex and quicker if it's not, I can get a pretty good idea of everything that's going on, combine that with the patient's knowledge. So I always give them a summary, you know, hey, listen, I've just figured out this, that and the other. Is there anything I'm missing? And then we launch into the consultation. Libby, you'd remember briefing council. Um, and, 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 and you turn Everyone up, describes to me. And you turn up at court on the morning, or even if it's a road traffic case. I did photocopying. Yeah, you turn, sake, you turn up at court and hand the brief over, and the barrister's never seen it before. Oh, I know. Being, and the magistrate's I get it. half an hour away. I get it. You've got You're to be on across half an hour. You've got to be across a brief quick. And I barristers do, that here. do the same thing. I, get I was it. going to bring up that topic, but I mm. thought I wouldn't embarrass <laughs> you. Girl. No, 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 it's true. And, and in fact, um, even in this line of work, particularly on the breakfast program, when it's so fast, you do have to master a brief very quickly, and mm. that's your experience. Yeah. You manage to master a brief very quickly. So I understand um, it's the empathy and the idiosyncrasies of the patient mm. that you can't write down, unless you guys do write down our little mm. idiosyncrasies in your notes, like blah, blah is, tends to be a bit melodramatic, so that when when X walks in, when blah, blah walks in and comes in with a little bit melodramatic, you can calm them down before you get to the, you know, like, do you actually write down personality <laughs> traits in those notes? No, not. I, but do you know what I you mean? Might, you like you put little, little things variance. to remind you about things the person might be doing, like, you know, they're off to Bali or they're 
you know, some things that you might sort of... Or they've had a marriage breakdown, recent marriage breakdown. Or children's names or something. So that Something in like that. So, But I think one of the things that you do um, as a doctor, and I think GPs, when you think about it, they see um, so many patients. The full-time GP would is just, you know, seeing so many people um, in their lifetime of work. And they they are able to read people fairly well, fairly quickly. And that's part of what people love about general practice. It's, it's a real... It's a profession for somebody who likes people. If you don't like people, I don't think you should be a GP. <laughs> Could I just talk to you about um, country practice here? Because um, a lot of our listeners are in regional Victoria. Um, are, are regional Victorians uh, disadvantaged by the system f- for GPs or is have we overcome some of the problems of distance for country Victorians? We've we've had a lot of focus on um, getting GPs to country Victoria. Um, it is a challenge. There are areas where there aren't enough GPs, and so that is a real issue. There are also areas where there's just the most um, fabulous GPs that are uh, providing excellent services to the community. Um, but it is an area of a, a gap. So well, have we got music in the background? It's a country practice. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't pick what it was. Look, there's Fatso the Wombat. You know what, too, on the whole country GP issue, even though there's a going, shortage... Keep going, Steve. <laughs> but even though there's a shortage, some of the country GPs are phenomenal. Like, I had a beer with one of my country GP mates on the weekend because he was down, and he does all these courses every year. Yep. He does, you know, anaesthetics. He does an update sort of one month every two years, and, the, and there's government incentives to do this. He does an obstetric update. He does... You know, they do all these updates, so you get a lot of GPs who are traditional generalists, mm-hmm who know half the town and have got sort of skills where, you know, they, like he, he anaesthetises people in the local hospital where he works. Mm. It's pretty phenomenal. How hard Absolutely. Is, how hard is it to get young grads who want to do general practice to live in the country? Because we can't get lawyers to go to the country. Yeah, it's a Until challenge. Until they go and then they love it. It's a challenge. A, a very mm. good friend of mine who's got a, a very good country practice is desperately looking for, you know, the next generation to come up and so he can retire. Mm. Um, and it's hard. They have to start that process very early the on. medical schools are doing a lot though, aren't they? Trying very hard. I mean, there's really, there's lots of incentive programs for people to go to the country. There's special colleges that focus on rural medicine, rural and remote medicine, and they, they're working hard, but it's still an issue. I mean, as and with anything. Health, and mental health is a big issue yeah. in the country, isn't it? Absolutely. Mental health is a big issue um, all across the the nation, but in rural areas, it's also a particular um, area of problem. Because isn't it funny how mental health is like our scourge. In order to make medicine work, we need technology, but some would say that technology is also the cause of this rise in disturbed mental health because we're disconnected. Mm. Mm. It's funny, isn't it? We can live isolated lives, yeah, which is really... I mean, who knows why there are these um, nodes of mental, severe mental illness and suicide in regional centres, but, uh, you know, a lot of my friends who live in these places are just despondent about it. Because they know them all. They know these people. They're friends and neighbours often. That's right. I mean, I I think that the challenges that um, really confront us around things like, you know, suicide in in country areas and where you get that happening in local communities, they are really huge challenges to to overcome. Um, The thing, I I think there's a lot of focus on on that at the moment, on running programs and, and trying to make people, you know, go for help. And certainly many people do go for help every day and that that's great and we would encourage anybody who you know is feeling that that's an issue for them that they do reach out
out um, because there is somebody there who um, will be able to help. And I, I think that's one thing we can guarantee. And the GP would be the person they should re- the go G- to. GP is the first port of call. Mm. So, you know, given that I think it's about 40% of doctors specialise in general practice now, what are the big challenges going forward? What do you, th- you know, where do you see it in 10, 20 years' time? I think um, one of the big challenges is dealing with the mental health issues that, that face, you know, so many people through our community and GPs have acknowledged that in a recent survey. I, I think that the way that we um, integrate digital health um, and mobile health technologies into the way that we, we care for people is going to be a, a major challenge. I think that we need to be considering all of the information that we collect, um, all of the electronic medical record data and all, all that information that we have, how do we use that wisely? Um, how do we um, you know, reduce the need for people to tell their story over and over again, duplicate things? Mm. Um, how do we you know, reduce the waste in the, the, the system that we've got? They're, they're all the big challenges for the future. The other challenge, I think, is to keep up with the research. I mean, I've got this fabulous GP um who for example tells me told me about b3 two years ago how it's a really good way to reduce your risk of getting skin cancers improves your immune well there's some research that shows there's a one in four chance that it will reduce you the incidence health of skin cancer you go mad when i give legal <laughs> advice on it no no i'm just giving an example now i wouldn't have known that sort of stuff he he gave me the he's given me the the pneumonia inoculation he's given me the um the flu shingles inoculation yeah. you know and i didn't and i had to pay quite a bit for that because i was too young to get it at the time but i wouldn't have known about a shingles vaccine but for him raising it i wouldn't have known there was a pneumonia mm-hmm. a pneumonia vaccine and yes he raised it and you know i find that um they've got to know for example with b3 what the research is showing so they can pass it on so you can get it down to the patient you yeah. know this is these are research findings that are coming through and i thought you ought to know about them and that's great well, for a patient i think absolutely you know gen- i didn't go there to hear research findings you know it, it was a, it was an add-on yeah, well, general practice is, is very involved in, in research as well, in using research and also in prevention. So things like immunisation, vaccines, I mean, that's really, you know, general practice is one of the most important things it does is, is get more people vaccinated. Yeah. Mm. Well, I would like to thank you all for the most stimulating hour. Professor Jane Gunn, Primary Care Research at the University of Melbourne, where she's head of the Department of General Practice and Deputy Head of the Melbourne Medical School. Thank you for sharing your knowledge right across the state tonight. We've thoroughly enjoyed meeting Thanks, you. Thanks, And, of course, to you too, Ratbags. Associate Professor Steve Ellen, Psychiatrist and Director of the Psychosocial Oncology Program at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. Thank you so much. Thanks, Libby. And Bill O'Shea, Man About Town and Melbourne lawyer, always a delight. 